Uh, as Kurt said, that reading was from Romans chapter 4, and um, we're in a series this morning, uh, continuing a series, we're in the fourth chapter of Romans, working our way through the book of Romans. Uh, we'll take a pause during Advent, which is, I guess, coming soon, <laughs> and, uh, and we'll be in the book of Isaiah for the time of Advent, and then we'll come back to Romans after the new year, which I'm really excited about. So this morning, chapter 4, kind of the end, several paragraphs, verses 16 to 25, so... And we're going to be talking about this concept that is very common or familiar to the Christian vocabulary, this idea of faith, as George Michael once sang about. Um, if I could make as much money from this sermon as he made from that song. I mean, that's crazy that he could just say that word a bunch of times and make a million bucks. I know, we're both like, what? But that's how pop songs go. So faith or living by faith is a big topic of interest these days, and, and actually, as I reflected on that, it's not for the reasons that we might hope as people who are, are gathered here. So recently I was, um, I was out with a member, a former member of our congregation. Um, we'll call him Robert. That's not his real name. So you, you can't look next to him and go, where's that guy? I wonder where he is. Um, there's, there's people that come and go all the time, but we're out for a beer recently, and he'd been gone for a while from our church, and we hadn't seen each other. And he called me up one day and said, hey, I'd like to get together. So I was like, okay, here's where I'm going to find out why. And um, sort of together, just catching up on life, and I just kind of had this really blunt East Coast moment where I said, so why are we here? <laughs> you know, like it's, you know, we both have families, it's a weeknight, like, why am I here with you right now? And he said to me, um, it's not what you think, it's not what you think. We didn't leave Bethany for another church, in fact, we're not going to church anymore. Here's why we're here. I don't know if I believe anymore, Jack. Um, I, I woke up one day. Literally, it really just struck me. I don't think I believe. Um, and I don't know what to do about it. I'm afraid. My wife is afraid. Like, I, what, can you help me? <laughs> he kind of enlisted me as a spiritual advisor. And it was kind of a wow moment for me. Like, I don't know that I have the, the guts to do this with this guy. And it was also crushing. And here's what was so crushing. It wasn't the first time I'd had that conversation. Um, I've had these countless conversations like this over coffee, uh, often on my bike with people who don't attend churches. Uh, most of my biking community are secular, kind of non-believing people. On airplanes, when it's funny when you're a pastor and you fly places and people find out, <laughs> watch out. And, and, and then some people who are still here inside the church um, over dinner and lunch, trying, like, trying to live by faith but struggling along with each moment. In fact, it's, it's, it's fairly common knowledge now that, that Americans are leaving the church in droves. The nuns, uh, N-O-N-E-S, not nuns like if you are part of a convent, but the religiously unaffiliated are now America's largest quote-unquote religious group. Um, so a full quarter of Americans, 25% of Americans, are claiming no formal religious identity anymore. So these are people that either self-identify as atheist or agnostic or people who literally just describe their religion as nothing in particular, spiritual but not religious. That percentage rises among millennials, so 33% of millennials say this. And then if you ask a slightly different question, here's the gut punch. The Pew Center asked this question in this groundbreaking study in 2014, their religious landscape study. They asked, uh, are you absolutely certain that God exists? Are you absolutely certain that God exists 
This is the crazy thing. Uh, That number is dropping more sharply than any other number amongst the silent generation, those born between 1928 and 1945. I won't ask for a show of hands. That percentage is around 71%. That's kind of what you'd expect. Amongst boomers, 69%. Amongst Xers, 64%. And here's where it goes down. Amongst older millennials, 54%. Amongst younger millennials, some of you, 50%. Every other person, if you're a millennial in this room, is saying, I don't know if I believe anymore. I don't know. And so it's one thing to question the institutional church, to say, I don't know if I can go with that program anymore. I see the scandals. I see the political leanings and dysfunction and prejudice. It's another thing to question interpretation of the Bible. I don't know if it's everything it says is. It's one thing to poke holes in the, in the traditions of your parents and grandparents. It's another thing to lose confidence in your belief in God, to say, I don't know if God is. I don't know if God's involved in history I don't know if God's involved in my life. I don't know that God's really mapping out my days. I don't know if God's really offering peace and joy and hope because I'm not experiencing those things. I don't know if God's dealing with injustice, frankly. Like our friend who met with me over beer, uh, who despite all the sleepless wrestling and I think furrow-browed prayers, I think this guy prayed uh, and questions in, in his best intended efforts at worship. Listen, this was a guy who was here almost every Sunday. Best intended efforts at worship, he simply lost faith in God. Just lost it. So what happens, friends, when the reality of God to you just seems like too much for you to claim ownership of? Like with integrity, you, you just say, I can't keep going anymore. You're in the middle of a full-blown spiritual crisis. And you, you don't know, like you're spiritually dry, you're carrying this weight of guilt and shame because you're questioning. Um, you're here today, but you're not really here today. You came with somebody else because you love them too much to not come. You're reading your Bible, you're praying, you're volunteering even. You help out on Sundays here. You're attending services, you're giving money, but it's all just motions. You're just doing it. If you're, in, let me just say, if you're in that place right now, I'm not going to ask you to show your hand. Or if you know somebody is, you have a spouse or a friend or a coworker or one of your children, a student you teach, I'm not going to tell you there's a simple way back. That's not what I'm going to do this morning. I'm not going to try and map out the path back to God. I don't think I could. In fact, that's unfortunately what I told our friend Robert that day over beer. I said, faith is going to be a very different experience for you, I think, if you choose to live by faith. I can't even promise you're going to find your way back. I can't do that. So what can I do? What, what good am I up here, this guy yakking for the next few minutes? I think I can ask a couple of honest and open-ended questions about faith with you um, and then ask God to meet us in the questions. I think that's the best I can do. And so I want to do that with you through Romans 4 uh, and this enigmatic character of Abraham because as a, he's a case study of faith and he lived by faith and yet, guess what? He never met Jesus <laughs> and he struggled His faith was not a linear path. It was very circuitous, often a step forward, maybe a couple steps back and then sideways. And yet, listen to this. He is revered by 2.4 billion Christians, 1.6 billion Muslims, 13 million Jews. He didn't rule an empire. He wasn't a king. He didn't have an army. He He had no territory, no land, no miracles, no prophecies that we have. And it turns out he has incredible faith. Like he is the par exemplar of faith. This... This man who Paul invites us in Romans 4 to, whose faith Paul invites us to possess. So what is it about his faith? 
that is so significant for us today. And so there's two questions I want to explore. What is faith? What is the faith of Abraham? Okay, because that's important to understand. And then number two, how does faith grow? Or how might, by looking at his case, how might faith grow in your life? Okay, there's a couple ways. So first, uh, if you're with me, what is faith? And this you'll find starting in verse 16, where here's what Paul says. Uh, The promise of God comes by faith, so it may be by grace, may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only those who are of the law, so that would be Jews, religiously Jews, or ethnically Jews, but also those who have the faith of Abraham, or other, in other words, religiously or ethnically non-Jewish. And as I look at a room probably full of mostly majority non-Jewish people, that begs the question to me, uh, what's the faith of Abraham? Like, if I'm guaranteed grace by his faith, I would like to know what that is. And Paul gives us a hint in verses 18 and 19 which is our allusions, if you read the passage, to his story in Genesis. And specifically, if you go back sometime, read Genesis 12 to 15, you just read the whole story. And, but here's the curious thing. I'm not going to read the whole story, but if you know the story, is a mixture of what we might call faith and not faith. Here's what I mean by that. Genesis 12. We're told that Abraham leaves his land, and he just goes where the Lord tells him. In Hebrews 11, it actually illustrates that. It says he goes, though he didn't know where he was going. He went without a map or a compass or a guide, just went. But not long after that, he ends up down in Egypt, and there's a famine. And so he goes down to Egypt, and while he's there, he remember this? He lies about his relationship to his wife, Sarai, and he says she's his sister. And in Hebrews 11, or Hebrews 12, 11, he says to this to Sarai, I know that you're a beautiful woman, which, by the way, is probably the right thing to say to your wife, but when the Egyptians see you, they're going to say, you're my wife, and they're going to kill me, and they're going to let you live. So let's say that you're my sister, so, here's what he says, that my life will be spared. And, of course, they do this. She's taken as a concubine in, in the Pharaoh's court. His life is spared. And, by the way, Abraham becomes very wealthy as a result. Not faith. Not faith. Later in Genesis 15, he's seen God at work in his life in all these different ways, but not perhaps in the most important way, which is to give him a son. He's, they're still, he and Sarai are still childless. They're getting older and older and older. He's probably about 85 at this point, and thus he has nobody to pass on his wealth to. He's become wealthy, right? No one to pass on his wealth to. So God takes him outside, remember this episode, and says, Abraham, look up at the sky. If you can count them, which I just think is hilarious, like try counting the stars if you can, that's how many children you'll have. And then we're told right then, right there, Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. It's a, that's the quote that Paul takes. Three paragraphs later in the story, still in Genesis, but 16 now, Abraham's asking the question, how though? Like, I'm old, Sarai's old, we haven't been able to have children. Uh, How's this going to happen, God? And remember what they do? They concoct a a little plan B. And and Abraham's going to sleep with Sarai's slave, Hagar, and build a a family through her as a way of certifying God's promise. Well, if you can't, God, through Sarai, we can do this through Hagar. And that's what they do not faith. And so we see in Abraham this mixed bag. Uh, he's a paragon of faith, and yet he's always making duplicitous du- decisions. Like, why not? I go, God, why not choose Daniel in, in Romans 4? Why not Esther? Like, they never seemed to screw up. They were all like, Daniel in the lion's den, man. Esther, she's going in, she, she's facing down the king. Why, why, why Abraham? Like, why this guy? Well, if you take his story as a composite picture, all of it, I think what you begin to see is that 
his faith is not this wild leap in the dark, though he does meet God in the dark. Ha ha. It's not bomb-proof certitude either, though he does declare great faith in a moment, right? I believe. Um, faith is just a step, and like I said, sometimes it's one step forward and then two steps back, and then a step sideways, and then another step forward. Sometimes it's in the dark, sometimes it's in broad daylight, sometimes confidence, sometimes he's overwhelmed by doubt, and yet faith. And that's because it's this mixed bag of intentions and hopes and feelings and expectations Faith always involves trust, and that's the essence of faith. That's where the word comes from. Faith is this Latin word fidere, which is the word confidence. That's all it was. I have confidence. I don't have bomb-proof certitude. I don't, I don't know if I believe it all, but I have confidence to take the next step, right? And that's it. I, th- I think the episode that illustrates this best from Abraham's life, and you all know this, is, is from later in the story in Genesis 22, and it's the story of, of him and Isaac, And you remember this story. I'm going to read just the first eight verses of Genesis 22 because as a father of a son, as I read this this week, this sent, like, and having done these dedications today, kind of chills over my spine. Here's what happens. Genesis 22.1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. You could say he tested his faith. He said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. And then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I'll show you. So early the next morning, Abram got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out to this place God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham took, looked up, saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, stay here while, with the donkey while me and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering. He placed it on Isaac's back, and he carried the fire and the knife. And the two of them went together. And then Isaac spoke up, and he said to his father, Father, yes, my son, the fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb. And the two of them went on together. I mean, can you imagine, I mean, a lot of you are parents here, can you imagine uh, that scene for Abraham? I mean, this is a guy, this is his son. It is a promise, but still it's his son. And this is a kid who obviously knows where this is going. Those are his questions. Hey, Dad, (laughs) I've been around long enough to know where this is going. Um, can you imagine what's going on with their hearts and their minds in those moments? I, I, would, I believe they're just being ripped into shreds. Like, I can't imagine having to go through that because they know it, where, they're, where they're going. And yet Abraham trusts God enough to continue down that path. And so does Isaac. So faith is really about trust. It's fundamentally just about trust. Uh, Peter Warner, he's a columnist for the New York Times. Actually, he's a... He's a conservative columnist in New York Times, so put that in your pipe and smoke it. But he, uh, he wrote this fascinating reflection on faith a year or so ago. Here's what he wrote. He said, Perhaps the key to understanding why faith is prized within the Christian tradition is that it involves trust that would not be needed if the existence of God were subject to a mathematical proof. So what God is seeking is not our intellectual assent so much as a relationship with us. That is, after all, one of the purposes of the incarnation. And then he goes on to say, Every meaningful relationship, parent or child, 
spouse to spouse, friend to friend, involves some degree of trust. It's better and more vivifying to be the object of someone's trust rather than the last person standing after a series of logical deductions. That's true for us as individuals, and that has to be true for God as well. And then he finishes by saying this, faith demonstrates human trust in God, and according to James Forsyth, who's the pastor at, at their church, it demonstrates that we, at, we accept God's love for us. This is what Forsyth says, there's a force within love that longs to be received. There's a force within love that longs to be received. All good relationships, friends, are bound together by love. And, and in that way, love is always an expression of faith, and which makes faith about just trusting love. It's trusting love. For example, I know that my wife loves me. I know this because I know her heart and I know her. I know her character, and I trust. My faith is in her, is, is in, in that love is less about a physical or intellectual certainty that I have. She's my wife. We made a covenant on August tenth, two thousand and two, and we have this certificate that that gives us certain tax benefits. It's way more than that. It's it's in her as a person. That, that it's far more holistic and, and personal than any abstract concept of marriage. And I, listen, I love the idea of marriage. I love that. But I can only do so inside the container of trusting love that I share with Elizabeth and the day-to-day ups and downs, peaks and valleys that we share. I love the ideas of equality and reconciliation and justice and resurrection and re- redemption and grace, all this stuff I preach about, all the things we talk about. I can only believe in those things inside the container of trusting love that is God's son, Jesus. If I try and believe in grace as an abstract concept, I will lose faith. It has to be within this. This is why Paul says in Colossians 1 that he's presenting to us the fullness of God's word, which is the mystery of Christ in you. That's the mystery. Christ wants to live within you, to have a relationship with you. He wants to go beyond church services and beyond Bible studies and beyond doctrine and beyond theological certainty and put himself in you. That's what faith is about. And if you haven't experienced Christ in you, you're, you're, you're on the precipice like my friend Robert is and your friend Robert is of losing that experience of God. So what faith can do that, that nothing else has the power to do as the engine for your life and for our community <clears throat> I think, is it puts us inside this story. I mean, relationships are about stories, right? Love is about story. Trust is about story. This narrative of God's involvement in our lives, in our world. And, and so where God is the, act, the, the author, and we're just actors in the story, participating in the story, taking steps. Here's Warner again. He says, faith gives us a role in a gripping drama that includes betrayal, redemption, but grace as well, and gives us purpose to live despite brokenness and pain, and I'd say doubt. This, means, this may mean nothing to you, he says, but to people of faith, it is everything. That you are, in part of a, you are part of a story, a big part of that story, it means everything. And the story's not over yet. That's the thing. That's what I need to go back and tell this guy, Robert, is that you have a vital part to play in the story. Right now, you just don't know what your next step is but you're still part of this story. What does it mean to live by faith in a world and in a time which faith is just being questioned and under scrutiny where you might be losing it? It means opening the story. And I'm not talking about just opening your Bible. It means sitting down and going, God, I am being overwhelmed by wild unbelief. Where in the story am I? What's my part in it? It might be asking God for the humility to say, God, I don't know the next step, but I'm going to take it. And I'm going to trust you. Because right now I feel like Abraham with Isaac next to me. I feel like I'm going to my death. 
You have a part to play in God's story. You're not alone in that story. And if you lose a sense of that, you know, if you're just going through the motions, and if you don't look around you and see the, the people around you that are also struggling but also choosing to live by faith on Sundays and Mondays and Tuesdays, uh, you're not experiencing what God has for you. It is struggle. <laughs> it is sometimes joy. And this is why Paul, or maybe whoever in Hebrews who wrote Hebrews, said that there were people who were counted amongst the, the cloud of witnesses who, guess what, were sawed in two and tortured and put in chains and, and suffered from hunger and heartache because that is part of the ecosystem of faith. It's not just sinking joy to the world. It is also saying, God, where are you? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's why we look at, failure, uh, at Abraham, because despite his failures and flaws, he trusted God. He was in relationship to God enough to trust him and then let, let God live through him. So do you have the faith of Abraham? Uh, this, this, the faith is simply take the next step. Whatever that step is, it, it could be as you've come into contact with your own brokenness, the depth of your brokenness. It could be physically could be spiritually. It could be a sin that you're struggling with. It could be as you're facing doubt. Uh, doubt is an ingredient in, the, in faith. <laughs> as you face that, will you embrace that? It could be in the wake of incredible grief. You've lost somebody. It could be in the uncertainty of your career. It could be as you're facing these overwhelming events of our time and not sure how to respond to those faithfully as a Christian in the world. Like, how do I even speak anymore? I have no integrity no platform. That's where faith, that's where the rubber meets the road of faith. Like, God, meet me in that. So for every person in the room, there's a step of faith. There's a couple hundred of you, there's at least 200 steps. Uh, If we were Jewish, we'd say there's at least 201. (laughs) So one of you is having two steps. But what I want you to think about as we move on is, like, what's your next step? What's the next step for you? That's where you start to engage faith, okay? Let me move on to the second thing here which is how does faith grow? So if it is about a step, a step of trust, then how can I exercise that? How might it grow? And we'll find this in verses 18 to 20 where it says, against all hope, Abraham believed with hope. And there's various um, ways that that's put in different translations. Like in the New American Standard, it's in hope against hope or New Revised Standard it says hoping against hope without reason for hope in another translation. I think the literal Greek is beyond hope on the basis of hope. Um, there's a lot of ways to put that. I think the best I've ever read is by this church father named John Chrysostom. He was from the 4th century. He said, it was against man's hope, in hope, which is of God. Against man's hope, in hope, which is of God. So which is to say that Abraham had every reason from a human point of view just to give up his attempt to produce a child with Sarai. Uh, indeed, as we heard, they tried <laughs> through, with Hagar. And yet, they moved beyond that moment and took these next steps. Literally, Abraham is confronted by God. Uh, he laughs at the idea that this promise could be fulfilled, which I think, by the way, is a little bit like when Peter says to Jesus in, in John 6, where else would I go, Lord? When, when Peter is confronted by Jesus with unbelief, are you going to leave me? <laughs> and Peter says, where else would I go, Lord? <laughs> You have the words of eternal life. I think it's a lot like Abraham's laugh. I think he laughed because it made no sense to him. He's almost 100. It makes no sense, and yet he knew he had no other choice. He had nowhere else to turn. It was just him and God now. And so his faith flew in the, in the face of uh, a hope that's founded on evidence and reason and common sense. Hope, as we often use the word, by the way, is like, I hope I win the lottery. Like, if I buy enough tickets... You know, if, if I hope this sunshine 
lasts. I wrote that like on Thursday. So I hope the Seahawks win the Super Bowl. I mean, that's actually derived from this classical Greek concept of hope that Paul is actually reacting to and rejecting. In the classical Greek thinking, uncertainty of the future is, is fundamental to the concept of hope, which really means, regularly, it means like foreboding expectation, like, man, I'm, I'm afraid the other shoe's going to drop. I'm uncertain. It's a kind of a wishful thinking, and that's how we use it. Like, life is a series of chance, circumstances, unfortunate events. I can't predict the outcomes but I can hope that they're good. That's actually contrary, the exact opposite of the ancient Jewish way of thinking of hope. Uh, hope, biblical hope, that Paul's trying to articulate, is the expectation of good. It, as one commentator says, it's hoping against hope, <laughs> hoping in God against hope of the world. It's not being afraid of the leap in the dark because God is there. It's not an irrational decision. Of, it's not checking your brain at the door either as Some people think you're doing by coming here. But it's a leap from the evidence of your senses into the the reality and security of God's promises and God's character. So put differently, Abraham is just letting God be God. That's what he's doing. He's trusting God to be true to himself, his character. God is good. So the Bible tells us. And his power, he's the God of creation and resurrection. He's leaning into that. He's hoping into that. And his promises, I... If though this comes later, I will never leave you or forsake you, Abraham. I will always be with you. So here, the key to this concept of letting God be God, according to one theologian, is this juxtaposition between God's promises and God's power. As this guy writes, there's a correspondence between the faithfulness of God where, and, and, then, and then the character of God, or the, the power of God. So much so that, that have faith in God. That's what Jesus tells the disciples in Mark 11. Have faith in God has sometimes been paraphrased, reckon on the faithfulness of God. Re- think about the faithfulness of God. That's what it means to have faith in God. Whether, and whether people keep their promises, you know this, depends not only on their power to do so, but their, their will, their choice to do so. You have to choose to keep my promise. I can flake out on you all the time. Yeah, let's get dinner. <laughs> you see this in Seattle all the time. So behind all promises is the character of the person who makes them. And Abraham knew this as he's contemplating his his own infirmity. He knew that behind the promise of God was a good and gracious and great person. That's he knew that. And so he didn't turn a blind eye to the problems he's facing, but he he reminded himself again and again and again of who God is. As, As Hebrews 11 says again, By faith Abraham and Sarah, who were past childbearing age, were unable to bear children because they considered him who's faithful. They took time to consider God's faithfulness, and that gave them faith. So two vital applications for you before we finish. Number one, we exercise faith, and we will exercise faith when we believe that God has the power to intervene in the world. God's character, has, he has the power, but the character to intervene in the world. God has told us, just like he told Abraham, he's going to intervene in the world. He said this. That at the end of time, and then as time unfolds toward that end, evil will end. Beauty, intimacy, light will saturate the universe. Christ is in us. If we believe, if we lean into that promise and be God's faithful presence as we journey toward it, um, if we let God be God for the world, wherever you work, wherever you live, in whatever you're dealing with, you will be filled with hope. As you choose that, as you say, God, as the end of Habakkuk says, though the fig tree does not bud and there's no grapes on the vine, 
and the olive crops are failing, and the, there's no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, and you might look out at our world, and there's no hope. There's no goodness. There's no justice. Here's what Habakkuk says. I will be joyful in God my Savior. I, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Let God be God in the world. Which relates to number two here. We will also exercise faith in as much as we trust the, the power of God to intervene in our lives. So in the world, for sure, which you can take your hands off more easily than you can your life. Sometimes you look at your life, you're like, but yeah, my marriage is falling apart. I'm dealing with sickness and doubt. When, when God says God loves you, <laughs> do you believe it? When God says God forgives you, do you, when you're racked with guilt and shame and self-condemnation because of another round of porn or rage or drinking or closing yourself off to someone in need or whatever it is, do you believe when you're in need of forgiveness, do you receive the forgiveness? When you're in need of love, do you receive the love? This is a huge challenge for me because I close myself off. I know my brokenness and I just live in my brokenness. Yep, this proves it. I'm broken. <laughs> Everybody sins, including me. My heart's sick. I live in denial of that sometimes. Uh, will I receive what God has for me? That's faith. And that will fill you with hope because God has told us he loves each of us. Each of us personally, not just cosmically. And you've got to lean into that. Let God be God for you. And that's how you exercise faith. Here's the last thing I want to say this morning, um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll finish with worship. So the first thing is just let God be God. Here's the second thing that Abraham did. Um, without weakening his faith, in verse 19, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Which simply means this. He contemplated his death. He, fa- he, he as Richard Rohr said, died before he died. He died before he died. I love that concept. Here's what Rohr said in this little... Um, this little devotion that I get every day from him. But he says, it's the lar- in the larger-than-life people like Abraham, I always find one common denominator. They've all died before they died. And thus, they're larger than death, too. At some point, they were led to the edge of their private resources, and that breakdown, which certainly felt like dying, led them into a larger life. <laughs> and they went through a death to their various false selves and came out the other side knowing that death could no longer hurt them. So death is not just the death of your physical body, though some of you are experiencing that, but all the times, like I just said, you, you're hitting the bottom, and you're, you, you're hitting the bottom of what you thought life was going to be like. And in that sense, we are all probably going through death right now. Like, and yet, unfortunately, most of us, we tend to avoid it. We say, man, I, we are prolonging life. We are medicating with all kinds of things. We are trying to hold off our impending literal death as well as all the other deaths we experience. And that, will, that unpicks us. We, t- we tend to, we're, we, we get bitter because it doesn't, it's not going the way we want. I'm not living longer. I'm not being filled with more joy. I'm actually dying. We get so bummed. <laughs> we're avoiding death. And, and in that way, it's actually the avoidance of death that is really death. It's the embrace of death. It's saying, I'm going to die. I'm, it's, I'm, that's how the world's designed. I'm going through it. And, and like Abraham did, just reckon your death. Think about your death. So here's the deal. If like Abraham, we choose to, to walk through the depths, face our own mortality, die before we die, um, 
we will come out the other side of that uh, changed, completely changed. Abraham was changed. His name, as he starts to do that, changes from Abram to Abraham. And that's a significant thing in the Bible. Without weakening his faith, Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. And God changed him. Which can only mean this, that, that considering and contemplating your own death will become a source of courage and endurance and great faith for you. Even salvation, I could say. That's what it means when it says we're saved by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Being saved doesn't mean you got a ticket to heaven. It's not some cosmic ticket where you're going to be whisked off someday. It means you're being allowed into this mystery of transformation here and now. And Paul prays in Philippians 3, my favorite prayer in the Bible, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, by what? By the participation in his sufferings. And then he says, by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I can attain the resurrection. There is no way to resurrection without going through the valley of Jesus' death. It's the only way we can do it. It's not a one-time cosmic transaction we get. It is a a constant pattern of growth and change, and it happens through the experience and the facing of death. So he saves the world that way, and accepting that as a gift, that is what it means to be created in God's image, to be an image bearer. It means accepting your dependence and your limitedness, not as a result that that will result in disaffection, but as, as a thing that gives you hope and courage. Death is, is beautiful, friends, and I hope we can face it. So here's the questions I want to invite. I want to invite our worship team up. Here's the questions I, I kind of threw at you this morning, and I want to invite us to ponder this morning as we respond. Um, you might consider any one of these. You might need to write them down and think of them over the week. <clears throat> you might be thinking of one right now, and this would be a good time to ask the Lord about, about that a little more. Um, where in your life are you facing death? Um, where in your life are you facing death right now? Uh, it might be in a relationship. It might be physically. It might be spiritually. I told you about this guy, Robert. You might be that same person. Um, how might you learn to embrace that? As Montague once said, to have death in your mouth and just like roll it around a little bit. Let it dissolve in your mouth like a little lozenge. Say, God, death has no sting anymore. Death has no sting anymore. I can face that. Where in your life are you dying? Number two, where in your life do you need to let God be God? Where you, where you need to take your hands off your life and say, not my will, not my plans, not my life, not my life. Where in your life do you need to just let God be God? Trust him for the world. Um, it could be a situation. The news cycles is grinding you down to a pulp. It could be a thing that's going on. Say, God, okay, I can't anymore, but you can. Here's the last one. What is your next step? For some of you, uh, that step is coming quicker than you hoped. It's tomorrow morning at work. You know, it's uh, when you go home from church today and you have to have the conversation. It's, um, it's this opportunity. It might mean you have to t- have a little courage. It, it might be a sense of failure. What step is God inviting you to take? Remember, he's with you in it. <laughs> That's what Abraham knew. So you can take that step, as good or as hard as it is. So think about those questions. Where, where do you need to take the next step? What, where do you need to let God be God? How are you f- experiencing death right now? Beautiful questions, I know, <laughs> which is why we get to sing a little bit. <laughs>
Let's pray. God, thank you for this opportunity to respond um, in community that we were given as a privilege. Uh, this weird thing that we do, <laughs> gathering every Sunday and singing together. Um, may these words and these praises be to you. You are God. We want to declare that you're good, that your desire is justice, that your desire is an experience of grace for every human being in this building and then every human being outside. Your desire is to be known by us. Um, so, God, that's why we're going to sing right now. We want to open ourselves up to that. These questions, God, that are rolling around in our heads, would we, would we just lay them before you and allow you to minister to us? I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.